Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is time for searching the scriptures in the Coffee Hour this week. It is a new month. It's November. Yes, it is. So I think it's time that we should dig into searching the scriptures in the Lutheran Witness November issue in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins. He's managing editor for the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you. Good to be back. It is always a joy to get to study God's Word with you, and it's like the rapid version of <laughs> 20 different verses. What's the, the theme this month that we're looking at in Searching the Scriptures? So we are getting close to wrapping up the study of the Apostles' Creed that we've been doing over the last... We are in the second to last study here, and it's going to be focused entirely on the forgiveness of sins. And this is actually one that's near and dear to my heart. You'll notice I began with a question here in the study, why must we firmly maintain this teaching of forgiveness, the doctrine of justification by grace for Christ's sake through faith? And this is actually near and dear to my heart because childhood pastor, uh, Pastor Robert Hill, he asked myself and each of my siblings this three question, this question during our questioning. We all knew we were going to get this question. And there was four answers. We all had it memorized. It was absolutely delightful. But uh, it is the central teaching of the scriptures of Lutheran faith. And, uh, and understanding this is, is vital to understanding who we are as the people of God. Do you want to give any other background before we dig in, or shall we start the questions? Let's start the questions. All right. It's like a game show. (laughs) Let's start the questions. I'm going to win this episode. Okay. All right. We'll keep track of points this time. All right. Question one. Read John, 1 John 3, verse 4. What is sin? Read Matthew 22, 37 through 40. What is the summary of the law? What does this tell us about sin? So before we can understand what the forgiveness of sins is, I think it's also important that we understand first what sin is and its place in regards to the law and why we therefore need the forgiveness related to it. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, right? So what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Now, there are multiple layers here to understand this. It is lawlessness against God. In fact, later on in verse 8, John will say something like this. He'll continue and say, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Right? And then continuing the verse 10, whoever does uh, does not practice righteousness is not of God. Right. So first, sin is a lawlessness against God, a violation of his commandments, a rejection of the expression of his will for us uh, in the world. So sin is a rejection of God and his will. Now, there are many fine distinctions in terms of types of sin and various kinds of sin. For instance, we might talk of sins of omission and sins of commission. These are all great confirmation terms that I'm sure you all remember from the good old days. Uh, Sins of omission are those sins where we forget to do something, right? We are commanded to care for our neighbor. If we don't care for our neighbor, there's a sin of omission. Sin of commission is we're commanded not to harm our neighbor. So if we're harming our neighbor, that is the sin of commission. So those are uh, the types of sin. And uh, essentially, all of these are a reflection of the sin is a reflection of lawlessness against God, a rejection of his law. Now, if we look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, 
we get a summary of the law and get a, a little bit more fine, a little finer definition of the law from Jesus himself. And Jesus said to him, to this lawyer that was questioning him about what is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We could spend an entire semester discussing this little (laughs) passage right here because there's so much in it. But let's see if we can do this quick and easy. But what Jesus is essentially doing is summarizing the two tables of the law. The first table of the law, commandments one, two, and three, govern our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. These are all about our relationship with God. And that's the first commandment he says here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The second table of the law is your relationship with your neighbor and those around you. That is commandments four through ten. You know, honor your father and your mother, do not murder, so forth and so on. So that's the second table of the law, and it governs our relationship with those around us. Whether we are violating that first table or the second table, that first command or second command from Jesus, either disobedience to either of those is sin and lawlessness against God, essentially, right? Luther will actually say that disobedience to any of the Ten Commandments is ultimately disobedience to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. Uh, and so all of this sin, this definition of sin then, is lawlessness against God, rejection of his will and direction for our lives. All right. Anything else? I, I don't know. Do you have any other questions? I never asked that. I never asked you guys if you have any other questions. <laughs> Probably because we're afraid we'll never get through this. But. We would not get through it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited about Romans. So let's go on. Question let's do two. Romans. Read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Also see Psalm uh, 51, verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, the whole Bible. What is original sin? Yes. Read Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. All right. So let's go look at Romans verses 7 through 25. Uh, actually, as I was preparing, as I normally do, I realized I should rearrange things. First. Okay. So before we get to Romans 7, let's actually do Psalm 51, verse 5, and Genesis 6, verse 5, as we define original sin. So Psalm 51, verse 5, behold, I was brought forth and iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I just love that, like all the universals there, every intention, only evil continually, right? Uh, This is a perfect description of original sin, of our condition apart from the word of God, apart from faith. So Psalm 51 verse 5 explains this also, that I was conceived in iniquity. This is not referring to the condition of my my mother doing something sinful and wicked in the act of conceiving me, but is in fact the condition of the fact that I am descended, descended from human beings that are also sinful, and that I bear this mark of original sin as a consequence of the fact that I am descended from sinful people, right? So we have this mark of original sin from the moment of conception, and we are not able, we are incapable of freeing ourselves from this sin on our own because, as Genesis says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, in, in, in fact, Genesis that Genesis 6 passage becomes the impetus for the flood. God sees this and he sends the flood to destroy all mankind because of this every inclination of the heart. Now, what are the consequences of this? Well, this is where we get to Romans chapter 7, where we see Paul struggling with this uh, his nature as a sinful human being, but then also as a renewed child of God. So he has this old Adam 
Adam, this old sinful flesh, and this new Adam, and they are at war with one another. And this is this great passage where he talks about uh, this going back and forth. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it was to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all sorts of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he continues, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing that through what is good in order that the sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And he continues on. And then especially you see this, this struggle coming out. In chapter 8. And he says here, uh, verse 22 in chapter 7, sorry, I should get this too. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin continues, original sin, and then the sins of, of omission and commission that we commit as a consequence of that struggles against the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. For those who have faith in Jesus Christ and cling to him, these two struggle against each other. The law of my mind is what he's talking about in terms of his faith in Christ and his desire to live a godly life and to do, be obedient to the Ten Commandments and to love and serve his neighbor and to love God perfectly. This is at war with the old man and the old sinful flesh. And uh, as Christians, even we continue to struggle back and forth with this, which then leads us, I think, to Matthew chapter 15. Do I have time to do that one real quick? Sure. Or did you have a question? I heard you getting ready to take a breath there. Go ahead. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. This is a, I have a little story here, actually. I was, (laughs) I was catechizing this wonderful lady in, in, in the parish I served before becoming a missionary. And uh, she brought me a Valentine's Day card one time. And I opened it up, and I, and I knew she had understood the teaching of original sin when I read it, because it said, from my black twisted heart to yours, happy Valentine's Day. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was delightful, because what she grasped is the essential understanding that, that the original sin totally corrupts us, and that apart from Jesus Christ and apart from faith in him, we cannot redeem ourselves. And this is exactly what Matthew chapter 15 explains for us. It's, Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil things thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Original sin causes uh, us also then to live uh, sinful lives and to do things that, that are lawless and, and reject God's will. And we cannot save ourselves out of this mire that we find ourselves in from this black twisted heart that we have. It requires the forgiveness of sins that we receive in Jesus Christ. Hmm. I think we'll take our pause here. Okay. Two we questions. On. We got two questions. Yeah. Before we go on to the remaining yeah. five questions. <laughs> we are searching the scriptures in the November issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins, managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. 
and at Concordia University. It's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the November issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. All right, we've made it through two of five questions. <laughs> Shall we go on to question three? Let's give it a whirl. All right, uh... Read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. Apparently, you like verses 18 through 20 of all the chapters here, because we just did that in the last one, too. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, what is the forgiveness of sins? Okay, well, let's actually start with the reading. First, or 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this, St. Paul writes, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, so what is the forgiveness of sins? It is the message of reconciliation, right? If sin is lawlessness, is our rejection of God and his will for our lives, then the, the forgiveness is the reconciliation that we have with God, is him reconciling us to himself, that we are first, as St. Paul points out, this is, he's talking about his own, in his own context here in, in Matthew, or Corinthians, that he was first reconciled to God, right? Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave to us the message of ministry of reconciliation. So first, we are reconciled to God, and then now St. Paul's talking about how he then serves in a ministry of reconciliation. As an apostle, as one who proclaims this message of Jesus Christ, what does he do? He goes around and reconciles people to God, which is amazing. The fact that we who were at one time enemies, right, completely despised and hated God, those who bore original sin are now reconciled to him as his children in Jesus Christ, okay? Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? Well, they go between uh, governments, right, and and try to bring these things together, right? He's an ambassador from God to people that they might hear this message of reconciliation and be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. That is, he is doing this work of, of proclaiming reconciliation. The, the passage from 1 John chapter 2 we use another fun word, which is absolutely delightful. As an editor, uh, words are a delightful thing. You should all learn to love words like I do. First John chapter 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation, right? What does this word propitiation mean? It is the appeasement that is necessary for the consequences of our sin. You might think of it this way. If your neighbor's son hits a baseball through your window and breaks your window, he is going to propitiate you. By paying for this window, hopefully he will do that, actually. So also Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the one that appeases God's wrath over our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, and that these sins might not be counted against us, but they are counted against Jesus instead, that we might receive forgiveness. So this is the fundamental understanding. Sin, lawlessness, rejection of God, forgiveness is uh, that reconciliation, that new life that we have in Jesus Christ as a consequence of his suffering and death for us. Paying the price we cannot. All right. Question four? Mm-hmm. Read Psalm 103, verses 11 through 14, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. How many sins does Jesus forgive? 
read Matthew 12, 31 to 32. Are there limits to Christ's forgiveness? We're going to deal with the last one last. <laughs> We're not going to swap the order here. So uh, Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, right? He's the one that created us from dust. He knows who we are. Uh, and as a consequence of Jesus' work for us, he forgives our sins from the east, as far as the east is from the west, right? No no limit there, right? Uh, complete and total forgiveness. There's nothing that you can do that will forever uh, remove you from Christ's love. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for, he, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not simply has he forgiven us, but he made Christ sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, God's very own. And so, so once again here, the, the idea being there is no limit to Christ's forgiveness. Well, now we get to the second question. Are there limits to Christ's forgiveness? And and maybe that was poorly asked. Let's read this <laughs> read this passage and, and kind of like struggle with a, what's what a, a very difficult teaching from Jesus. So Jesus is teaching uh, and he's teaching about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this is often known as the unforgivable sin and and can become difficult for people to understand what is this and what does this mean. Well, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit not? First off, it's not just the general rejection of the forgiveness of sins, right? Uh, it, Jesus does not condemn all those who have rejected him as condemning the sin against the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is those who are convinced by the Holy Spirit of the faith, and yet they reject and even blaspheme that. So the Holy Spirit has worked in them. They've heard the proclamation of the word. They actually believe that it's true, and yet they reject and blaspheme it, right? It is the mark of the obdurate, also another great editor word there, obdurate or hardened heart, okay? Now, this sin is unforgivable, Jesus says, either in this this world or the next, because this person has, has received the enlightening of the Holy Spirit and rejects it. Now, what does this mean for the people of God? The fear is, of course, well, did I commit that sin? How do I know, right? People worry about this. And here's the, the traditional advice, and it still holds true. If you're worried about the sin, you probably haven't committed it. In fact, you haven't committed it. Why? Because the hard heart, the one that commits the unforgivable sin, doesn't worry about such things, doesn't worry about forgiveness. It has rejected the Holy Spirit, blasphemes the Holy Spirit, is hardened in sin. They are not concerned about such things. So for those of you who worry about this, you haven't committed this sin. This sin is is the sin of those who have completely rejected the Holy Spirit and blasphemed him. And that sin is, is unforgivable. For those whom Jesus has elected, and in fact, actually for the entire world, Jesus forgives all sins, but this one sin is the sin that that precludes forgiveness. Anything else on question four, now that we know the limits? Yes, <laughs> which are not, yeah, it's, and here's right. the thing, right? The, the struggle becomes that there are, the, 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 that ir, there is that unforgivable sin, and yet at the same time, you know, you, 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 
the the person who like say say for instance and I'm not saying he he has but some of these really horrible people that we see in the world could repent of their sins on their deathbed and all of those sins would be forgiven right uh, think of the most horrible person you can that person can be forgiven but it is the person who has hardened his heart blasphemed against the Holy Spirit that person is not and so that that becomes really difficult for us to understand and struggle with sometimes question five let's go read Romans ten verses fourteen through seventeen how does the Christian receive the forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, how does the Christian receive this forgiveness? They receive this forgiveness by the proclamation of the Word of God, and then also by extension of that proclamation, the sacraments, the administration of the sacraments. It's important to realize, here we talk about the means of grace, Word and sacraments. It's important to realize that the sacraments are the the Word of God in physical form, right? Baptism is the Word of God with water being washing away sins. The Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ, effective because of the Word, right? The thing that drives all of this is the Word. Word of God. And it is through these means, through this proclamation, the administration of these means, that forgiveness is received. This is where Luther's insight here is absolutely beautiful. He talks about the organ of faith being the ear, right? Mm -hmm. That faith comes through the ear, right? The organ of faith. Not the eyes, right? Because we can't trust what our eyes see. It's what our ears hear that that delivers this forgiveness. This also comes uh, in particular, well, let's go to question six, because question six just kind of picks up right where this one leaves off. All right. Read Acts 2, verses 41 to 44. Where does one hear of this message of forgiveness? So those who received his word, it says in Acts chapter 2, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay, so where do we hear about this forgiveness? Where do we uh, hear this word proclaimed? Well, this passage here is Acts chapter 2. Paul has just gotten up uh, after Pentecost, preached an amazing sermon, and uh, 3,000 people were convicted by the law and received the gospel and uh, baptism and became children of God, received forgiveness through baptism. What do they immediately do? Well, they do what we do every Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Where do we go to hear the message of forgiveness? Well, we go where God's people are gathered. We go where his word is being proclaimed. That is, we're in church every single Sunday because that is the pattern of worship. That's the pattern of life that we receive in the, or that we see in the early church, but it's also where we go to receive this message of forgiveness. Here's the thing. One in the conclusion to this study, I'm not skipping over question seven, but uh, I talk a bit about how the forgiveness of sins can become uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Is the cliche right? You know, you hear it over and over and over again. We hear about the forgiveness of sins, and it's like, Pastor, come on, you talked about that last week. Why are you still talking about this, right? And this familiarity can breed contempt. But this forgiveness of sins, this reconciliation with God, is the most important thing we can hear and receive, right? If you knew. 
every Sunday you could go to this one place and you were going to receive a million bucks. Would you be there every Sunday? I bet you would, right? Well, this message of forgiveness is even greater than that. There is nothing in this world that can compare this message of forgiveness. And we hear it every Sunday. We receive it every Sunday as we uh, hear his word proclaimed, receive the Lord's Supper. As we hear the pastor himself say, I forgive you your sins. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm reconciling you to God. You are no longer separated from him, but you are and remain one of his children. There's no greater gift that we that we could receive than that on Sunday morning. So that's where we go. Sunday morning, divine service, uh, but also, also regularly in his word, reading his word at home, uh, those things as well. Better than a million bucks. Better than a million bucks. Yep. Question number seven. I think we have a title for the issue, right? <laughs> Sorry. Ro- read Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. What does the forgiveness of sins indicate about our relationship with God? Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were, while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Right? This is, once again, the point that I was making there at the end of the last question. We have been reconciled to God. We were at one time enemies of God. And what did he do? While we were yet enemies, he sends his very own son to suffer and die for us. If he loves us that much, that he will send his son to suffer and die for us, how much more will he continue to preserve us and keep us in this faith, keep us reconciled to himself? Uh, and that is how we, where we find ourselves, reconciled to God as his own children, as heirs of his promise. And to that we say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> and right on the dime there. Excellent. <laughs> right on time. Thank you so much, Pastor. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Looking forward to uh, next month studying God's Word with you again. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.